Well, good morning and welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. Would you stand with us this morning? Let's sing the mercy of our God. And praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy Rich in mercy, sing this faith. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Derek Horn and this is Beth Davies and we are part of the Springdale community team. We'd like to welcome you and welcome those that are worshiping with us online as we worship our Lord and study the word of, of God together. Um, if you would pull out your iPhones please or your Androids or uh, flip phones will not work, John Barclay, so sorry about that buddy. Point them at the screen 
and you will find out everything that is happening here that is important at Fellowship. How to get plugged into a community group and all the neat ministry opportunities that we have for you, uh, different ways that you can serve here at Fellowship. And after you do that, please check out the video. Three, two, Count of three when children open the shoe boxes, they're so excited. Those faces just transform. Yeah, these kids behind me are so excited because they've just received their boxes. The mouth is wide open, the voice is raised, smiles are all over. That box brings joy. It's a gospel opportunity is the chance for the children to change the entire life. That's what I love about Operation Christmas Child. It knows no borders, it knows no boundaries. It's all about sharing the name of Jesus Christ. Churches are doing big things with Operation Christmas Child. Everybody out there who packs shoe boxes, they are spreading God's love. As maximum impact in the worldwide kingdom of Christ, I mean, what better thing could you do than be involved in fill shoe boxes? After receiving the shoe boxes, the children will be invited to go through the greatest journey, which is a 12-lesson discipleship program where they learn about the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ. After a child completes the greatest journey, they graduate and receive a Bible in their own language. That's right, you get to be something, uh, get to do something really special through these little boxes. And if you didn't get yours this morning, they are available in the foyer. Um, you just today can get those um, after you exit the side doors. If you could loop back around to do that, that will help us with the traffic flow. And um, for those that are watching online, we hope you will come by um, sometime this week. Um, you can pick up your boxes in front of the training center um, just here on our campus. So those will be available for you there. Uh, but yes, please get these um, filled and returned here in a few weeks. And we also have a local opportunity. That would be through Community Kids Closet. And typically we have needs notes in the foyer um, that you would pick up and then purchase these items for kids in our area. But this year we're asking that you would actually donate um, the amount that you would normally give um, to the organization and then they will take care of that. So you can do that through a link on the Facebook page um, or you can write a check to Community Kids Closet CKC and put that in our offering slots which are located um, as part of our building as you exit and they're also um, our offering slots are in the foyer by the um, water fountains. I lost the word for a minute, by the water fountains. So um, please do that, but make sure you make the check out to CKC so it gets to the right place. Thank you for making a difference. These, these things make a huge difference, as you can see on the video. We have another unique opportunity for you. We have the beams that will be set into the Fellowship Bentonville building, and the beam is currently outside our west doors in the breezeway. So after the service, please enter out those, enter, exit out those doors over there and go sign on the beams your favorite Bible verse or a, a prayer of blessing for our Bentonville campus. So let me pray for us as we go into worship this morning. Father God, we love you. And we thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have to honor as you as our Savior and our, as our King, Father. As we study your word, God, we, we thank you that your word does not return void and that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, God. We pray that it would pierce our hearts and help us to move forward in faith in our walks with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you believe that it's already November 1st? It's crazy, isn't it? It's starting to feel like winter outside. And this month, we have the joy of practicing thankfulness. And so if you've been around fellowship for a few years, you probably know that we have a tradition around here and it's our Thanksgiving share service. And this year, in light of COVID-19, we are going to be doing our Thanksgiving share service a little bit differently. So we invite you to share your gratitude with us via video. 
And so if you go to the website on the screen, fellowshiprogers.org slash Thanksgiving share, you will find instructions. And we would love for you to share how God is working in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of those around you and share your gratitude. This morning, I want to take a moment and reflect on God's goodness. And I pray that his goodness would lead us to gratitude and worship. So would you stand with us this morning? Let's look at James 1, verse 17. Would you read this out loud with us? Let's read the word of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's praise him as we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing to my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me song. invite you, like I did earlier, to gratitude, invite you to lament. Lament is often called a song of sorrow that is also a prayer to God. And it's more than tears or a venting of emotion. It is a Christian way of pouring out our frustrations to God, pouring out our fears and our sorrows and the purpose is a renewed confidence in God's purpose. So I'm gonna sing a song over you this morning that was written by one of the worship pastors here, Seth Prim. And it's Psalm 77, a psalm of lament. And as we sing this, I want you to practice these four steps. Pastor Mark Vrogup says that there's four steps in the process of lament. Step one, Turn to God. 
And step two is to bring your complaint before him. Step three is to ask boldly for help. And the last step is to choose to trust God. So whatever it is that is going on in your spirit this morning, whatever's going on in the world around us, whatever's going on, friends and family, lay it before God. We have the opportunity to lament. So be aware of his presence as we rest in his word this morning and as we sing.
Well, I think I have to start by acknowledging um, that something big happens this week that I know is on everybody's mind. Um, Mandalorian season two drops on Disney Plus, right? That's what you're thinking, right? Yeah, we've got a big election coming up on Tuesday, and, and um, man, I mean, everyone I talk about this, family and friends, right, left, the entire spectrum, when I ask, how are you feeling, I do not feel happy, I do not hear happy words, okay? No matter where you are, I hear anxious, scared, sad, frustrated, powerless, angry, which sound oddly opposite of the fruit of the Spirit and what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. And I'm not saying that those emotions are not right. What I'm saying is we need God's help, right? So what I'm going to invite us to do now is not leave all those feelings at the door, not pretend they're not here, not to deal with them later, but to actually do what God says and bring them to the Lord. So can we pray together? God, we love you. And uh, we thank you that you are the king of the universe. You always have been, you always will be. And you have not lost that throne through the rise and fall of empires, um, through changes and, and uh, different elections. And, and nothing that happens this week is going to lessen your reign one bit. And so Lord, I pray that we'll take comfort and peace in that wherever we fall, whatever our political leanings are, whatever our hopes and fears are uh, for this week. Lord, I pray that we'll put all of our confidence and hope in you. Lord, I pray that, uh, that, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that this church and your church more broadly uh, will be an example of what it looks like to have unity, peace, love, integrity, um, even among differences of opinion, that we would be a church uh, that could um, walk with courage and faith and hope and peace and love across the aisle, across all of our differences. Could we model that this week, Lord, and in the weeks to come? Uh, we entrust um, our community, our nation, our, our people to you. We wanna follow you with courage and faith, come what may. We love you and praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. We buried my grandfather this fall. It was the, uh, I had never preached a funeral, and so my first funeral uh, was my granddad's funeral. And uh, odd things happen around death. Uh, people who do not have an inclination to be philosophical are suddenly asking philosophical questions. Like, what's a soul? And how do you measure the meaning of a life? How do you come to terms with how, how short our lifespan seems to be? What happens to a person when they die? Suddenly, as, as, as I was standing there at the visitation, um, all of these questions are welling up, and I see all these different emotions um, raging with the people around me. And we're going to find this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that Paul is speaking directly into that situation. He's speaking to people who are grieving loss. And he's going to bring the truth of the gospel to bear on grief. And one of the things that, that we need to remember when we come to this is the situation that was going on in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul had started this church he, he was doing what he normally does where he brings them to faith in Jesus and then he starts instructing them in what it looks like to follow Jesus. Many of these are coming, people are coming from non-Jewish backgrounds so they have very little familiarity with the God of Israel. But because of persecution, Paul got driven out of town early. He didn't get to finish his normal instruction. And what we're gonna find this morning is that it seems like something was incomplete in the Thessalonians' understanding of the hope that we have in Christ. And so Paul's gonna address that. Take a look, if you will, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. That's where we're gonna begin. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, 
so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Okay, so this is Paul's big idea. This is what he's going after here. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be lacking in the truth about what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died. I want you to know. Apparently, there was a threat that they wouldn't know. Apparently, there was something lacking in their understanding. He says, I want you to know the truth for a purpose. And that purpose is so that when you grieve, you don't grieve like the rest of mankind that doesn't have hope. Now, what Paul is saying is that something about our theology, something about the truth we know in Christ, is going to transform the way grief works. What he's not saying is that because of Christ, we don't grieve. He's not saying that because of what we believe to be true, we we show no emotion, we have no sadness in the face of death. This is obvious when we look at the New Testament because what we see is people who grieve deeply over death. When Jesus came to the grave of his friend, he wept. When Stephen was martyred in the book of Acts, they mourned him deeply. When Paul had a friend who was very, very ill, He got better and Paul said, I'm so thankful that I was spared intense grief if he had died. Paul is not saying uh, the Christians should not grieve. He's saying that kind of grief will be transformed. So the first thing we need to do is we need to give ourselves permission to grieve. Now, I don't know what your experience of of church and emotion has been, but traditionally we, we tend to find ourselves in one of two ditches. One ditch looks like saying the purpose of faith is to chase after a kind of emotion, to try to find a religious experience that'll make me feel something. And that is the goal of faith. In a pendulum swing reaction to that, we tend to say, let's remove all emotion from faith. Emotions are are, are flighty and unreliable. They can't be counted on. So make your faith built around fact, not emotion. Get emotion out of it. And when we do that, we fail to recognize that God designed us with emotions. He designed us to feel things for a purpose. Now, my own personal experience is that for about 20 years, I was emotionally constipated. And and what that means is that I didn't want to let any of the bad emotions out, so I just wound them up really tight into a big giant ball of anxiety. And I didn't know what to do with it. And it numbed so much of the things I needed to feel until I was given the gift of Disney's Inside Out. (laughs) Now, in this one beautiful moment, Bing Bong, the part elephant, part dolphin, part cotton candy, has just lost something dear to him. And two different emotions are going to try to help him work through his loss. Take a look at how it plays out. Well, hi. We're showing a clip live in service that we can't show online because of copyright stuff, so I thought instead I would tell you what happens in it. It's from the Disney Pixar film Inside Out. And in this scene, uh, the imaginary friend Bing Bong, he's part elephant, part dolphin, and mostly cotton candy, uh, he experiences an intense loss um, when his magic rocket ship is, is thrown away. And as he sees this rocket that's really dear to him uh, disappear over the edge of a cliff, he just kind of collapses into inactivity. And this is a problem because they're on a mission. They got to get somewhere. And Joy knows she's got to get him up, this other character, Joy. And so she walks over and she tries to distract him out of his grief by being silly, by trying to tickle him, trying to do everything she can to get him moving again. And none of it works. He just sits there. And then another character, Sadness, walks up and sits down to him and next to him and says, I'm sorry they took your rocket. It's gone, and you're never going to see it again. And Joy panics and goes, what are you doing? You're only making it worse. And Sadness says, I'm sorry. And she looks back at Bing Bong, and, and he says, it was so important to me. That was the last thing I had of his best friend Riley. And Sadness goes, yeah, you must have had a lot of adventures on that. And now it's gone. That's really sad. And he turns and he just starts crying and he gets all of his tears out and then he looks up and he says okay thanks I feel better now and he gets up and he starts leading him on the way for the rest of their mission 
and joy is com completely flabbergasted. She says, Sadness, how did you do that? And Sadness goes, I don't know. I just... And then the scene cuts, and we go on. What happened to Bing Bong in the moment of his loss? He just plopped and couldn't move, right? You ever notice how grief can do that to you? How it can just zap you of all energy and all ability to do anything? You know, I think that's actually a gift. You see, I think one of the primary purposes of emotion in our lives is to draw our attention to what is valuable. It helps us to recognize what's most important to us. And grief is like this just restrainer that forces us not to move past the loss of something valuable. It forces us to stop and recognize that something has been taken. Now, this is often really inconvenient, right? There's never really a good time to like shut life down. And so there's gonna be this impulse that we gotta keep going. You can't slow down, you can't stop, there's stuff to get done. So what did Joy do? What was her attempt to keep Bing Bong going? Did you hear the first word she said? Hey, we can fix this. She came in trying to shut off the grief, shut off the sadness, and move on as quickly as she could with, with proposals of how we can make it better, distractions and games and silliness. Did you notice Joy's body language the whole time? She was constantly leaning away from him. She was constantly moving and act, active, showing we got to keep going. We cannot stop. Contrast that. What did sadness do? She came and just plopped next to him. Everything about her body language said, I'm good to sit here a while. I don't have anywhere to go. If you watch Sadness's response, a few things that come out that are central to helping people grieve well. The first one is presence. We need someone who will be with us who's not scared or uncomfortable of our pain, but says, yeah, I can be in this with you. I'm not gonna run away from it. The second thing she did was she acknowledged how valuable the thing lost was. She said, you... You lost that rocket, and I bet Riley loved it. I bet you had all kinds of adventures on it, didn't you? She acknowledged you lost something of deep value to you. And then finally, she acknowledged that it was, in fact, lost. She didn't shy away of the reality of it's, it's gone. And that's sad. That's really painful. Now, everyone's grief is gonna look different and people grieve in a lot of different ways, but at its core, I think these three things are gonna have to be a part of that process of having people that you connect with, of being able to acknowledge the value of the thing you've lost and to be able to acknowledge the fact that it is lost and it really can't be replaced. And, and when we acknowledge the value of something, that, that can actually be really complicated, can't it? Because sometimes what the person we've lost actually was a toxic relationship. Now that's really confusing. Grief doesn't mean that you paint over the hardness of that relationship as if, oh, that person was perfect and we had this wonderful, perfect relationship. Sometimes the valuable thing that you're grieving is the chance at a better relationship with that person. Sometimes when you have a bad relationship with a parent or a sibling or an uncle and they die, sometimes the things, thing you're grieving is, I wish that relationship had been different than it was. And now they're gone. Sometimes that is the loss. And one of the things that we can do is create space for that kind of grief to happen. We had a, a, a micro grief in our family recently. Um, we, we have grown kind of obsessed with audiobooks in our house lately. And so um, I had this great idea. My daughter didn't have any kind of electronic device, so anytime she wanted to listen, she was listening with one of our phones. And so I had this old iPod, this old iPod of mine from 10 years ago, and we loaded it up with audiobooks for her and said, here, this is yours. 
And so she could listen to it whenever she was doing chores. She could put it on when she was going to bed at night. She loved listening to audiobooks on her iPod. It was such a treat to her. She took care of it. She was responsible with it. She carried it around with her all the time. And you know what happened? One day, coming in from the car, she's got her hands full and she's got the iPod and she slipped. And the iPod hit the tile and it looked like this. And it wouldn't turn on anymore. Instant regret, sorrow, and tears. Now, as dad, it tears me up to see my daughter hurt. So what was my first impulse as dad to do? We can get you another one. It's gonna be okay. You can still listen on mom and dad's phones. It's not over. It's, it's really, you don't have to be sad. Now, what would I have been training my daughter in that moment to do? I would have been teaching her to not grieve a loss. Now, I am not saying that the loss of an iPod is on the scale with the loss of a loved loved one. But what I am saying is we lose things all the time. We lose objects. We lose jobs. We lose friends that move away. We lose promotions. We lose relationships. We experience loss all the time. Guys, this entire year has been a year of loss. High school proms that you look forward to that got canceled. Vacations you had planned that got shut down. Trick-or-treating that kids wanted to do, they didn't get to go out because it was COVID. Like it has just been loss after loss after loss this year. And every single one of those losses is an opportunity to learn how to do this well. It is not a sign of maturity to walk through loss without grief. That's actually devaluing the thing lost. So when the iPod broke, I tried with like that clip of sadness in my head to go sit next to my daughter. And instead of trying to take away the loss, you really enjoyed that thing, didn't you? It's really sad that it's gone. We get to train each other how to do this in all the smaller moments and learn how to grieve well things that are valuable to us. Now, you can do all of this really well. You can learn to grieve loss well and work through that process of acknowledging loss. It's not going to make the sadness go away. It's not gonna end it. As a matter of fact, really deep losses, we often grieve the rest of our lives. There are gonna be reminders the rest of your life of what was lost. But even if we do all of this well, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're gonna have the next thing that Paul talks about, which is, hope. You see, Paul contrasts the way the world grieves with the way Christians grieve and what it looks like to have hope. And and when Paul defines hope, uh, we need to understand what he means by this concept of hope and how it contrasts with the rest of the world. Um, To to see what it looks like to grieve without hope, in in the second century, we've actually found a letter of condolence written between two women in the second century um, where they experienced loss. One of them, it seems like she, she lost a loved one, either a husband or a son. We're not exactly sure from the letter. And the letter looks like this. You did a great memorial service. There was nothing you could have done to prevent his death. Therefore, comfort yourself with that. What was the extent of the comfort they could offer? It wasn't your fault. You couldn't have prevented it. That's all the comfort that there was to offer. Now, my generation, there was, there was years where maybe in America there was some kind of general spiritual idea, even among kind of non-Christians, that people go on to a better place. My generation has seen all of that disappear. And so my generation has been wrestling with this idea of death and meaning. Now, boomers, you guys had John Lennon and Bob Dylan. We millennials had Connor Oberst and Ben Gibbard. So you might be a millennial if you learned about life and love and why from Death Cab for Cutie. And Death Cab was frequently writing songs wrestling with the meaning of death. And one of their most popular songs uh, along the topic went like this. Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light or tunnels to gates of white, just our hands clasped so tight, waiting for the hint of a spark. 
If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied and illuminate the no's on their vacancy signs, if there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark. What is the hope that my millennial generation was given on how to deal with death? There is no hope. There's nothing next. Heaven and hell, they've got the no vacancy signs on. There's nowhere we're going, so the best thing you can do to comfort yourself in the face of death is hold on tight to whoever you love. That is the most meaning you can find in life, is to find someone you love and hold on close until they die. Another one of their songs said this, love is watching someone die. That is what it looks like to grieve without hope. That was the meaning that has been given to my generation. And Paul has something different to say. And to understand what Paul means by hope, we have to define the difference between biblical hope and the way we use the word hope in America today. When we say hope, what we really mean is wish, right? So a kid could say, I really hope we get a snow day next week. Now, what's happening when somebody says that? That the child is suffering torture in school every day, and they're trying to find some sense of hope on the horizon that there will be a relief. And I remember as a kid, I still kind of do this, the calculations that you make when you see the weather forecast, right? I was an expert at knowing how cold it had to be throughout the day so that the ground would be cold enough that the snow would stick. Suddenly, science means a lot to children when there's the possibility of snow. And you hope for that snow day. You hope for that possibility that your current suffering will be relieved by a snow day. We hope for a promotion. We hope for a football team to win a game. We hope for an election to go our way. In all of those uses of the word hope, what we're saying is if there is a future event that I wish would go the way I want it, and I'm gonna wait and see what happens. Does that make sense? Here is the difference between that kind of hope and biblical hope. That kind of hope is a wish. It's what you wish for. Biblical hope is what you wait for. You see, the way we use the word hope, it's like the child hoping for a snow day. The biblical hope is like the child hoping for Christmas break. What's the difference? The snow day may or may not come. Christmas break is going to happen. I remember I could calculate it and I could count on it. 37 more days until Christmas vacation. And that certain future of relief is what helped me to survive the cruel and unusual punishment of school. I knew it was there. It was a certain future and my hope was in waiting for that day to come. Does that difference make sense to you? Biblical hope is a certain future that we are waiting for. So Paul is now going to define where our biblical hope comes from. And and this hope is built on two things. It's built on the work of Christ, and it's built on the words of Christ. Take a look. In verse 14, Paul unpacks for the Thessalonians what we're waiting for that gives us hope in the face of grief. He said, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. When Paul says these words, we believe, what he's doing is he is citing a creed. He's citing a statement that is at the core of the Christian faith that everyone believes. And he's gonna build his argument based on something commonly acknowledged. We do this a lot in politics today, right? We could cite something like, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Therefore, and then fill out whatever your policy proposal is. Now, what is the leader doing when they do that? They're citing a phrase that's at the heart of what the country is to say, hey, we all agree with this, right? This is who we are as Americans. Therefore, I believe that what I'm saying comes from that. Does that make sense? So what Paul is doing is he's saying, we believe Jesus died and rose again. Core Christian conviction. This is at the heart of what it is to be a Christian, is to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, let me show you where that leads. Now, we're 2,000 years out from this theological debate, so we might not even be aware that it was going on, but at the time of Christ, there was an active debate 
about whether the faithful people of God would be resurrected or not at the end of time. There were one group of Jews that believed there would be a resurrection, that all of the faithful would be resurrected from the dead and go into a greater new kingdom. There were another group of Jews that said, no, there is no resurrection, death is the end. And this was a lively debate that was going on in the first century. You can actually see the debate in the Gospels. They're fighting about it. And so rabbis would take different positions and they make different arguments based on different texts. So then what happens when Jesus, the ultimate faithful of God, dies? He rises from the dead. He's resurrected. That settled the debate. We now have evidence. Okay, we know what happens to the faithful in God. They're resurrected because the faithful one, Jesus, died and rose again. Therefore, the theological question has been solved. If Jesus rose from the dead, then all the other who have faith in Jesus are gonna rise from the dead too. Paul's making a theological argument that we know what happens to believers when they die. They'll be resurrected. So first he makes the theological argument of the training. He's going to make an argument based on the teachings of Jesus himself. Look at verse 15. It says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So now he's going to appeal to the actual teachings of Jesus himself about the concept of the coming of the Lord. Now, this phrase has actually been all over 1 Thessalonians, this idea of the return of the Lord. Look at this. It ends, the idea that Jesus is coming back ends every chapter in this letter. Take a look at this list here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, to wait for the Son from heaven. Chapter 2, will glory in the presence of our Lord when he comes. 3, when our Lord Jesus comes. 4, the coming of the Lord. 5, the coming of our Lord. Do you see it? It's all over this letter. Apparently, this idea is in the back of Paul's mind for the entire letter. It seems like this is the big theological idea that Paul wants to address in this letter. The thing that they were not informed about that they need to have their teaching improved on. And so he's now gonna talk to them about the coming of the Lord. Now, what is this word of the Lord that Paul's referring to? Look at how interesting this is. If you look at Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is teaching about the coming of, of the Messiah, of, of the end of the age, look at how much the vocabulary from Matthew chapter 24 overlaps with Paul's teaching here in 1 Thessalonians. When you compare the two side by side, you'll notice a whole lot of borrowed themes. Can we bring that slide up that puts Matthew 24 next to 1 Thessalonians? Awesome. So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, we see when the Son of Man coming on the clouds. First thus, the Lord will come down from heaven. The, his angel with a loud trumpet call. First Thess, the loud command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Matthew, they will gather his elect. Thessalonians, the dead in Christ will rise first, will be caught up together. Can you see what's happening? I think this is so cool. It looks like Paul is actually preaching a sermon on Jesus' sermon. He's taking the message of Jesus and saying, hey, let me unpack for you what Jesus said here in First Thessalonians. Really cool stuff. So when he draws out the implication of Jesus' message, he's gonna tell them that there are three big events that you need to understand are coming in the future. The first event he describes is this word, the coming of the Lord. He said the first thing that's gonna happen in order is that Jesus will return. So we begin with the return, and one of the things that this shows us and this is a surprising thing we don't emphasize enough, is that Jesus isn't here right now. Now, that might not seem like that profound of a statement to make, but we often talk about Jesus' presence among us for good reason. Jesus said, I'm gonna be with you always. He said, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am with them. But at the same time, there's another side of that truth. In the Gospel of John, Jesus gave his entire final dinner with his disciples to prepare them for the reality that he was leaving. You see, as followers of Christ in this age, we live in this tension of Jesus being spiritually present through the Holy Spirit, but physically absent. Why is that important? Well, think about what life looked like when Jesus was physically present. When Jesus showed up at a funeral, what happened? 
they came back to life. When Jesus walked into the room of someone who was deathly ill, what happened? He healed them. You see, when Jesus is physically present, there's no more sickness and dying. It's gone. And so there is a sense that every time we experience grief and loss, there is a subtle reminder that we need Jesus to be here. There is a reminder that we are looking forward to a day when Jesus is physically back on earth with us again. That is when death is defeated. That is when death loses its sting and gets swallowed up in victory, when Jesus returns. And so the hope of the people of God is that Jesus is going to come back physically, visibly, where we can all see him. Now we can experience an incredible spiritual intimacy with Jesus right now. And that drives our walk. But we look forward to his return. And then what's going to happen at the return? Well, two more events. The second one is the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, you need to know, first, those who are dead will be brought back to life. It seems like, we're not certain, but it seems like the misunderstanding the Thessalonians had was they had been taught to look forward to the return of Jesus when they'd be caught up together with him. So they're excited about Jesus coming back. And maybe they hadn't gotten the information about what would happen if somebody died before then. So it seems like their panic was when the first believers started dying and Jesus hadn't come back, they went, wait, does that mean they're going to miss out on the return of Jesus? Does that mean they're going to miss out on the kingdom? And Paul went, oh my goodness, you need to know about the resurrection. No, the dead in Christ don't miss out on the good things that are coming. They're going to be risen first. So he said, I'm going to take, Jesus is going to take all those who have died in Christ. They're going to be risen from the grave. They're going to be given new bodies. And then the third event is what we call the rapture. And in that moment, those who are still alive when Jesus return get snatched up and they're all together with the Lord forever. Now, this concept of the rapture um, is an important theological concept. Paul explains it more over in a parallel in 1 Corinthians. Take a look at what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, so not everyone's gonna die. There will be some people who will still be alive at the return of Christ. We'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. We will all be given those new bodies that don't get sick and don't die. In, the, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, resurrection, and we will all be changed. So everyone gets this new body that doesn't break or die. Some get it because they die and are resurrected. Those who are still alive when Jesus returns get instantly transformed into the new body. What's the point of all this? How does this theological truth bring comfort? We all will be reunited in Christ. Now, this issue of the rapture becomes a theologically dicey one when you try to put it on a timeline, specifically in relation to something called the tribulation and, and God's judgment on the world. And there's a lot of theological nuance that takes a lot of skill to be able to unpack the scriptures and wrestle with those issues which is why I'm going to let Mark Schatzman wrestle with it next week. It's going to be great. Tune in. But for now, what we know is the rapture and the resurrection bring together in Christ all of his people. The implication of this completely transforms how we understand grief. What it means for those who are in Christ is that death is not the end of the story. Death is not a period, it is a comma. Now, is there real grief to be separated from your loved ones? Absolutely. My little sister married a man from Australia. We love him and he's wonderful. And they moved to Sydney. Now, my parents wept at the airport when she moved to Sydney. I don't know if you know, but Sydney's far away. Okay? We don't get to see her as much as we used to. And there is pain and sadness in that physical separation. But we also know it's not forever. We will see each other, but there's a large gap in that time. In a much bigger way, death separates us from loved ones. And there is loss and there is pain and there is grief in that separation. But what the gospel says is that that separation is not forever. That there will come a day when we are all reunited to Christ 
and are with him forever. A giant family reunion where we see the loved ones who have died and will be with the Lord forever. And out of this truth, Paul gives the first command of the entire letter of 1 Thessalonians. He hasn't given a single command yet. And then in chapter four, verse 18, the first command comes, therefore, encourage each other with these words. You're gonna have to remind each other. Now, this is a better kind of comfort than those two women were able to offer in the second century, isn't it? This is better than just, there's nothing you could have done to prevent it. This comfort says that this pain and loss will not be forever. Now, can I offer a warning? We don't skip over grief to get to the comfort. You still have to value the loss, acknowledge the sadness. If you go to any funeral around here, what you're gonna hear is the pastors are gonna try to do both. They're gonna try to create space for people to grieve and acknowledge loss and offer the hope of the resurrection. Grief and hope, pain and expectation mingled together. This is what the gospel does for us in the face of death. So we wanna be a community that does this well together. In our small groups, in our community groups, we wanna be a place where we can grieve together, acknowledge sadness, and offer hope. And we have an incredible ministry here that I wanna make you aware of. If you are in an intense season of grief, I wanna tell you about Grief Share. Grief Share is a ministry that allows people to come together in a concentrated time and work on this process of grieving with hope. We have two opportunities coming up. First of all, on November 10th, we're gonna have a seminar on surviving the holidays. The holidays are particularly difficult on people who are grieving. You have this time when loved ones are spending special presence together, and that accentuates the absence of the one lost. So we're gonna have a time to just work on it. Hey, what does this look like? And then launching in January, we'll have our next Grief Share group where you can walk alongside some people who are dealing with loss and experience grief and hope and encouragement together. Because in Christ, a hope is not what we wish for. It's what we wait for. The pain and the grief is real and it must be felt, but it is not forever. Therefore, fellowship, encourage each other with these words. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the hope of resurrection. We thank you that you are with us in our pain. We thank you that you are spiritually present by your spirit and we thank you that you are coming again. So Lord, give us hope. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.
this truth this morning. this world this week, would you give us the strength and the perspective to face all that is ahead? And God, would we give you the glory as we see your faithfulness through it all. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name.